Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revivals, emo violence, even ska. We're here to help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council. Just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? Hello and welcome to episode 177 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com and today we welcome a legend, Connor Mullen Oberst. No, I didn't just add my last name to his name. That's his actual middle name, and we talk about it. And no, we discussed it. We are not related. Mr. Obris was very gracious with his time while having some work done on his house, which you'll hear at times during the podcast. It was an honor to discuss such life-changing events as seeing Fugazi when he was 11 and the first time he heard the word emo at 16. We also chat about his feelings on the word emo and his association with it when his sound was traveling the opposite way. What I loved most about this interview is Connor's openness. He was willing to discuss at length his history and what it made him and what he's trying to pass on, not just as a musician, but as a human. We then spent time on Bright Eyes Legacy as the band turns 25 this year and what he thinks about himself and what the future holds. Lastly, Down in the Weeds, Where the World Once Was is the new Bright Eyes album and is out now on Dead Oceans. If you want to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash washedupemo. And for those that have bought the book, Anthology of Emo Volume 2, thank you. Pick it up at anthologyofemo.com. This is episode 177 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with the legend, Connor Oberst. Hi, Tom. How's it going? What's up, Connor? Not much. Just, uh, I was actually just on the phone uh, a couple minutes ago with uh, Tim Kasher, and I said I was doing this. He said, oh, you're going to talk to Tom. He's a really nice guy. So no matter what happens, I'm going to tell him that's not true. I'm going to be like, oh, man, that guy looks horrible. (laughs) I know. Can't believe I... Such a pain. I can't believe I had to talk to him. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love Tim. I found out that Tim lives up the street from my uncle. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm 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 living in LA too, like half like part time here and part time Omaha and I get to see him a lot, which is nice. I know. It's probably like having a little bit of home. Totally. There's actually like a bunch of uh Nebraska transplants out here, which is which is good. Nice. Well, I'm glad Tim yeah. gave the glowing review because that 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 helps. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any recollection of what this is or what what my thing is about? Yeah, totally. I I think I get it. Kind of like 
90s, early 2000s, uh, birth of emo, quote unquote. Yeah. Cool. Sounds good. So Ian Mackay told me to do this and I've been forgetting, but I would like you to state your name, the date and where you are. My name is Connor Overst. I'm in Los Angeles and today is the 25th of September, 2020. Your middle name is my last name. How'd you get your middle name? Is it M-U-L-L-E-N? It totally is M-U-L-L-E-N. Yeah. That is my mother's maiden name. Uh-huh. And my my mother, um, so we might be related. My mother uh, has, you know, she's one of seven brothers and sisters. And not, and I have like, man, I have probably 30 some first cousins. Because wow. they all had a bunch of kids. And not all my first cousins, but many of them have the, well, on the, the, there's four girls and three boys. And of the girls, a lot of them gave their children the middle name of Mullen, you know, kind of keeping the Irish kind of, you know, uh, family name alive. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So like my, my cousin Ian, who's my aunt Karen's kid, his name is Ian, Mullen McElroy and my cu- my cousin Claire, who's my aunt Sheila's kid, is Claire Mullen Watson. I'm Connor Mullen over. So yeah, as you get it, it's kind of like we all got that middle name. A lot of us did. That's great. That's a huge family. Yeah, yeah, and we all kind of all grew up in Omaha and all grew up um, in very close proximity to each other. So. Um, even though I, I have two brothers um, in my immediate family, you know, I feel like I grew up in a much bigger family because, you know, we all baby, you know, everyone, someone babysat for everyone after school and every weekend there was like someone's birthday or some party. So I, yeah, I feel like I grew up in a family with, you know, many, many brothers and sisters. So um, yeah, I was lucky to have a still, still lucky to have a, big extended family that more or less, you know, a couple of them are freaks, but for the most part, uh, I, I get along with most of them. So that's good. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, you got a beautiful middle name. <laughs> uh, who in that family connected you with music or started to hand you records or mixtapes? So my oldest brother, Maddie, who like played in, uh, in high school, played in bands with like, Tim Casher and Matt McGann from Cursive. And he was always in bands and loved music. So he is the one that I would say introduced me to, um, you know, I guess alternative music or whatever you want to call it. Like in the, you know, kind of late eighties. Um, I remember his friend, you know, he was six years older than me. So his friend's, like on Sunday nights would come over to my parents' house and watch like 120 minutes. And, uh, you know, I was really young, but I remember thinking it was cool. And they would, they would always like tape them on VHS cassettes. And so that's how, you know, I first got, you know, introduced to like, you know, the Smiths and REM and the Cure and replacements and Pixies and, you know, all that, I guess at the time they kind of call it like college rock, but, you know, whatever that meant. Um, and so there was that. And then, you know, my mom and dad were music lovers. My dad plays music still. 
and that and you know they were obviously like more like 70s like folk rock so like a lot of jackson brown and Joni mitchell and neil young and all that sort of stuff and then um as i got a little older you know kind of junior high my next middle brother justin and i sort of started you know branching out a little bit there was one cool record store in omaha called the Aquarium, which we would frequent and uh you know kind of got you know this is like early really early 90s kind of discovered like caveman and super chunk and uh you know i guess what a lot of people would think of as like indie rock i suppose you know i mean all, i feel i feel sort of um you know, a little like, uh, I don't know what all these genres mean, you know, as you probably, I guess that's one of the things we're going to talk about, but like, yeah, it's like, what does all that mean? I mean, like when we were kids because of the record store and the older kids that would hang out there and the kind of like much older guy who was, you know, he's since passed, but he's, uh, you know, he was like your quintessential, uh, indie record store owner, you know, he was probably at that point in his forties or, you know, by the end, he was probably in his fifties. But anyway, he was, you know, guy that smoked cigarettes behind the counter all day and like taught you how to play chess and preach the love of vinyl over CDs and all that stuff. Um, and try to get you into old jazz records or old folk records. But he also was like an avid, like punk rock lover. So, we would, um, I guess we always called it punk rock when I was a kid. And that, and that's like, I don't think the genres were really defined at that point, but you know, to, to us, like, you know, uh, super chunk was equivalent with Fugazi was equivalent with, you know, even like the clash or something was equivalent with uncle Tupelo. I mean, it was all just punk rock in the sense of that. It wasn't what was on the radio and it wasn't, you know, it kind of gave you a badge of honor to kind of like, you know, take to your junior high or your high school and be like, I, you know, I'm a punk rocker. I'm not like a, I'm not like you guys that are listening to even like Nirvana, you know, I remember like we would make fun of, you know, we thought like our enemy was like grunge. Like we hated grunge. We, I mean, Nirvana kind of got a pass because they were sort of like universally loved a little bit and like punk rock and melodic but, you know, we, you know, no offense. I've since kind of come to understand some of that stuff. But when it came to, like, Soundgarden or Alice in Chains or, uh, you know, Pearl Jam or whatever, like, we hated all that stuff. We were like, oh, this is, like, you know, just douchey, like, kind of, you know, cock rock. Like, it's not... It was seen know, as the like, antithesis of hair metal, but it had its own... It was, like, cloth metal. <laughs> close metal <laughs> yeah it was, it was like cargo shorts metal yeah you know <laughs> i love that you said about sort of that you know it was all punk rock to me it was all hardcore it didn't like the show was a metal band a hardcore band an emo band a thrash band but uh, oh you going to the hardcore show tonight same thing there wasn't yeah there wasn't all the sub genres at that point you know i think at some at some some junction in the mid 90s they're kind of like i guess like indie rock kind of became solidified as like a thing, which I always associated with like, you know, like super chunk and merge records and like, um, that, that kind of like, which essentially was kind of just pop punk with a little less of the like 
fake English accent. And like a little more jangle. Yeah, there was something different about it slightly, but it was, you know, I mean, when I listen to like a lot of that stuff, to me, I'm just like, oh, that's pop punk. Just, you know, not like West Coast, like Green Day pop punk, but that's like, you know, some other Southern Midwest pop punk, which, you know, kind of, I guess, sort of morphed into what we are talking about is like emo, but we also love, deeply love Fugazi and like Discord stuff. So, you know, I can remember um, one of the shows that is like forever burned in my mind is like going with my brother, like Maddie, well, both my brothers, but like with Maddie and his older friends and going to this place called Peeny Park, which is like an amusement park in Omaha. They would have outdoor shows and seeing Fugazi when I was like 11 years old um, and being like, smashed in the mosh pit and like i think some of my brother's friends had to like pull me out you know because like, i was like probably weighed like 60 pounds or something and i was getting smashed so like you know and and now it's you know i was back in the day when it was like fugazi shows were every show was five bucks and you know like so we were very much steeped in that like diy aesthetic which i think you know, eventually led us to like starting Saddle Creek and putting out our own records and booking our own tours and all that was kind of stemmed from that same subculture, whatever, whatever that was. On one hand, it was a practical thing because we grew up in Omaha and there was, you know, little to no attention or respect paid towards, you know, well, art and music in general, but also, you know, specifically anything that was slightly subculture or left of the dial. And so there was no, um, there was no uh, illusion that like, you know, some guy, somebody, some A&R person was going to show up at one of our shows in Omaha and like sign us or, you know what I mean? Like if we wanted to, if we wanted to make music and release music, it's like we literally had to do it ourselves. Like there was no other way around it. Um, So on one on one, in one sense, it was that. And then I guess in another sense, it was that we, like I said, we were sort of indoc- indoctrinated into this like almost militant sort of, uh, you know, mindset of, you know, us against them and yeah, fuck the bands on the radio and everyone, you know, if you listen to like mainstream stuff, you're stupid. And, you know, it was back, it was back in the, it was back in the day where you had to like disown bands you liked if they got too popular or got too, you know, signed to a major label, like you're a sellout. So like, you know, it was like, it was cool to like smashing pumpkins, like up to a point, but then you had to disown them or, you know, Nirvana or whoever, you know? Yeah. So those were, those were like real concerns in our like junior high, like early high school days. And then you realize that that's all just bullshit anyway, but, it took a long time to get to that point. I mean, at that same record store, we would, um, you know, they had, uh, copies of, uh, book your own fucking life. So like, you know, you get a copy of that and you'd send your, yeah, you'd send your seven inch and you'd send your cassette tape literally, um, to like different clubs or different kids that were, you know, I'm putting in scare quotes promoters, you know, and you would, uh, you know, you would, uh, you just, yeah, exactly. You'd make friends and you, and we, we would definitely, there was one punk rock club called the Cog Factory in Omaha, which was basically like a hundred capacity, like black box in like a unpermitted warehouse. And, uh, 
that's where we saw most all the cool shows and you'd go to the shows and inevitably the bands would hang out and inevitably someone would offer them a place to stay and then you would you know become friends with those bands and you'd keep in contact like via letter writing and you know all these prehistoric modes of communication so that's how you know i i got a you know i I met like brit daniel from spoon when i was 15 or 16 that way and i met Doug marsh from built to spill around that same time and you know um you know the guys like I remember one time the cog factory had like such a shitty PA that it would always break. And uh, the guy that ran it knew that we had like a, I mean, it wasn't even like a really a PA. It was just like two speakers and a little mixing thing that we would have band practice with. But he somehow knew that we had that. And I remember him calling me like after school, I'm probably 14 years old on my parents' landline at my house and saying, Connor, um, the PA's broken and Brainiac's playing tonight. Can you bring the PA down? <laughs> and we would, you know, we like took it down there. And then I got to be like the, you know, quote unquote sound guy for Brainiac that night and like watch them, you know, watch Timmy Taylor like dance up close and be all kinds of sweet. And like, you know, I was like a little kid with like glasses on and shit. And like, they like, you know, Brainiac was like God to me. I mean, they were just, you know, so cool and had all their weird clothes on and looked all sweet and danced all sweet and played the coolest music. And I just remember like Timmy Taylor and all of them being like so nice to me. Like, you know, they could have been like dickheads. Like, this isn't a real PA. This isn't, you know, but they were like, oh, like, thank you so much. And like, I don't know, made me feel like part of the show or whatever, you know, which was rad. And, but that's that whole thing. Like when you're like you're 14 and a band does that instead of ignoring you and, and treating you like a kid, like, like that, that doesn't leave. And I think that's that, I don't know, like you said, the $5 show, like resonating and another kid that coming to your show, the thing you produce, hopefully they're continuing that because, you know, it's not just like, oh, we're going to get huge. Like, I don't think that was, you just wanted to make music. Absolutely. And I think that like, at least, you know, and I don't know, I haven't, you know, I'm 40 years old now, so I, I can't say I have like my finger on the pulse of like what young kids are doing nowadays, but I hope that, you know, that ethic and that like kind of aesthetic of, you know, supporting just really underground unsung stuff. I mean, I got to believe that exists in the world still, you know, I might not be as tapped into it. No, well, it, yeah, that's, it it, like, it definitely does. But I don't know if they're getting called at 14 to set up a PA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's pretty bad. What actually brings up it, the why, you know, bringing this up is it was, I don't know, 2009 or something. And I was two years into doing the website and it's the stupidest name and washed up emo and has gotten, you know, I feel like if I named it anything else, I'd have a different career path or something. But regardless, it was like a tongue in cheek joke because nothing I wanted to find was online. Like I couldn't hear, I couldn't find anything about Sunny Day real estate. I couldn't find anything about mineral in 2009. I get this email from this kid or maybe it was 08 and he was from Russia and he's like, Oh, check out my band. It sounds like mineral. And that was like foreign because yeah, I had thought just yeah. everybody forgot. Well, there was this giant, yeah. you know, 
weird era. No one remembers this. And it was, it was broken. And this guy was like, no, no, we love this. Like that. We want to, we don't want to play the pop stuff. We want to play. And I was like, oh my God, I think, I I think, I think it transitioned. I think we've passed it on. And there was this whole, you know, kids talking about the Midwest scene. And so I, it's almost like the, that mid two thousands was candy. And the previous thing was like the actual meal. Yeah. No, I mean, I love it that you brought up Sunny Day Real Estate because that's always when people ask me in interviews about emo and like, what, what do you feel part of that genre or blah, blah, blah. I'm always like, I always say the same thing, which is like, in my mind, you know, and I know I'm cutting off like early 80s, like right to spring. And my, when I think of like the term emo and like what I would relate to it, that's exactly what you said. It's like Sunny Day. Um, you know, well, Mineral, which was basically like Sunny Day Jr. And I'm totally. friends with Chris, so I, I think he would be okay. <laughs> he would agree. That. He would you know, totally they were, agree. They were heavily influenced, but I fucking saw Mineral play a bunch, and they're awesome. Um, and, uh, you know, tons of other bands from the Midwest, you know, Captain Jazz, uh, you know, uh, Vitreous Humor. Fuck yeah. Um, Christy Front Drive. You know, Christy Front Drive, Get Up Kids, all that shit. You know, it was, it was it was all kind of happening in that zone. And yeah, I guess it was, you know, it was those, those names were kind of interchangeable, like emo, punk rock, hardcore, you know, that it didn't really, you know, like, I don't know. I never paid much attention to that, but I, I guess when I look back with some perspective, I'm like, okay, yeah, that was a style of music, but that's so far, which I, you know, I, I want to check out, you know, more of your, podcast i haven't really but i assume like one of the things you touch on is like the convert or like the transition from that into what i would consider like you know mall oh totally mall hot topic emo in the early 2000s you know like and no no slight to them i think you know i got respect for like my cam and all that shit but like you know my chemical romance and fucking uh you know you know fucking panic of the disc uh, whatever all right. that shit like that kind of turned into more like mainstream stuff and i mean even like you know a band that i adore to the end of time like at the drive-in you know even when they got big you know i mean that was kind of a transitional i mean they were only in there for like a second because we also loved at the drive-in like in casino out era like we were we were obsessed with that shit and then they made the the major label record, which was also still fucking weird and great. And then they, obviously they took a super left turn with like Mars Volta. So I feel like they were never, they never had, they never really committed, but all those bands that went on to be famous got influenced by them. And I would say the same thing with, you know, um, even like my friend's bands. I mean, not to be like everyone copied us, but you know, I think like cursive and like the fame had like, huge huge ramifications on like the killers and you know fucking i don't know thursday or whatever yeah no but the way that you're you're sort of organizing this is a big part of the podcast but it's really interesting because the 90s there you know you needed to write the letter you needed to go see them at the show and then it slowly got faster. I call it pre-bleed American, post-bleed American. And Jimmy World's one of my favorite bands. Like yeah. I, you know, just I think they're, you know, it's just 
the way that they've you know carried on and but then back then they were touring with Christy Front Drive or Jay June or all these bands and then they had that they had that Bleed American moment and then I was working at a label and I was ignored by the A and R guys and then when those records started hitting they were like hey where are you going to the show tonight where are you going you know at the and I'm like oh wow like this is this is happening and I think the podcast couldn't have started then because no one wanted to talk about it. They wa- they were running away from the word. They still are. 98% of the people I have on do not associate or want to be any at all associated with the word, which I find interesting for your career too, because you, de- you kind of got to jump out of it a little bit. Yeah. It's so hilarious that you bring up Ben because we fucking Desperacitos, um, but we toured with Jimmy World on that fucking record. And we played like, um, I can remember one show we played in like Asbury Park, New Jersey to this like giant ass, you know, it was right when they had the take some time, you know, that shit. And like, it was like, we were, you know, it was like a 4,000 seat thing and that fucking the crowd hated us. I remember I just like, I just like laid down on the monitors and like quit singing like halfway through the fucking show. Cause I was just like, this fucking sucks. You know, I just like played chords and like, so it was like a half instrumental Desperacito show, which as you can imagine would be like really boring, but you know, that's like the Paul Westerberg in me. That's just like, fuck this shit. Um, and so I think by the end they like hated us, but like Jimmy world, but, Anyway, we were just, we didn't give a fuck at the time. And like, they had, I guess what I'm saying is that was like right at the moment where they kind of like crossed into like the mainstream and we, and we were, and we were just like, what are we doing here? Like this makes no sense, but you know, that was 2001 or two or whatever. So it was a weird time to like figure out what was happening. A lot of those bands didn't want to talk when I first reached out to them. There's a lot of bands when I first started the podcast didn't want to talk, and then slowly they did. Um, and the, this word has this connotation to it. And I think when you were in, you know, Commander Venus, you know, that was like you wanted to run away from it then. Yeah, well, I remember like actually Commander Venus was the first time I ever heard the word because we played out here. Um, our friend Stephanie Druton, who still plays in like The Good Life with Tim and She's played in Bright Eyes a lot. She's been in a million bands, but she, uh, you know, we met her, I was probably 15. She was probably 17 and she was homies with like Still Life and all those California, like really, I mean, I would consider emo, hardcore bands. And so she, you know, they came through Omaha. We became friends with, with Steph and, um, she had a band called Jay Lewis at the time. And then, um, yeah, Still Life and that whole kind of SoCal hardcore emo scene and uh anyway so we would end up playing out here just at like shows they would set up and i can remember being like 16 or something commander venus in la and i can't remember the name of the clubs but we played like whatever club um maybe we played like spaceland even or something like that like a more like legitimate club and some kid came up to me after the show you know and i'm like 16 at this point and they're like oh, that was great, but what are you guys doing here? Because all the emo bands play at, you know, blah, 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 this other club you know, that, that I'm forgetting the name of. But I was like, the what bands? <laughs> and they're like, the emo bands. And I was like, 
the what? <laughs> and like, I literally never heard the term before. <laughs> but I guess we were like playing that music. I don't know. That must have been crazy for that kid to just be like, like for you to hear that word. And was it, was it like, did you try to search it out? Did you try to find more info? I think I asked, I think I asked Steph and those, and like our friend, our California friends, like later that night, like, what does that mean? Like, I didn't know if it was a compliment or an insult. Or, <laughs> uh, we um, still don't know. Like, still don't. But, <laughs> but no, they're like, oh, no, that's just like, you know, I don't know how they explained it to me. But yeah, they were basically like, you know, like what we all play, essentially. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, but yeah, I never, that term had not made its way to Omaha yet. That's for sure. Being connected to it. How has that felt then, you know, you know, maybe during the heyday of it, the word itself, not the sound. And then today, like, how has that sort of, you know, changed? Well, I mean, you know, I don't, I think there was, you know, there was a moment for sure, like in the, you know, probably 2001 to 2004 range or something where like, it maybe bothered me a little bit where cause that was right when the sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, like the mall emo kind of started happening and it and also coincided with when I guess like bright eyes sort of started getting like national attention or whatever. And so that I was like, you know, I just felt like there was a disconnect. I was like, you don't like listen to our music. It does, it does like virtually nothing. I mean, I guess we're singing about our emotions, but, you know, I've always said, like, unless you're Devo or someone, you know, some kind of, like, esoteric, like, electronic ambient thing, like, unless you're, like, purposely trying to, like, extract emotion from your music, like, isn't all music emotional? You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of, like, not really, it doesn't really make any difference. Like, I mean, listen to, like, pop music. It's, like, somebody whining about their emotions, like, in a way that's, like, less creative than some of the bands were talking about, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's like, think of any kind of music. It's like, I'm crying because someone broke my heart. It's like, that's emo, right? I mean, that's essentially what it is. And so, and I felt like, you know, just, you know, musically and instrumentation wise and production wise and in every sense of the word, I felt like Bright Eyes was not that, you know, I felt, I felt like we were, you know, I always considered us like, experimental folk music like at, at the heart it was like i was making i was writing just simple folk songs with like you know simple chords and melodies and a bunch of words and then i was getting like my talented musical friends to like put a bunch of crazy instrumentation and production ideas on top of it and we were making these kind of bizarro records that i guess you know, I mean, I guess because I sort of the way I sang, which was like untrained and, you know, the, the subject matter, which was, you know, certainly adolescent and melancholic at that point, you know, I, I, it's not like I don't understand why I got lumped in with that, but I feel like if you want to break it down, like, you know, element by element, I feel like we were never, um, at all like those other bands you know in the bands i like but like 
like listen to a Bright Eyes song and listen to like a Sunny Day Real Estate song and like tell me what they have in common. Like virtually nothing, you know. Do you uh, do you ever have like a group thread with all the bands that were didn't want to be emo and you just talk about it? I just figured that just goes on <laughs> at some point. <laughs> I wish I wish we had that. What's that called? Like at the, at the job Slack, the Slack thread. Yeah, yeah. We should. There should be a, a Slack thread of just everybody's like, "Have you gotten bugged by Tom yet?" You know. No. All right. Well, that's <laughs> good. Um, no, but just sort of the. I think there's bands that get lumped into it that I thought the only time that you wanted to was when you were cashing checks or selling out Warp Tour, and if you didn't. Um, it was kind of like that sellout thing. Like, what do you mean you don't want to be like, it was, it was the, you know, you signed to the major label, all of a sudden you're a sellout, you know, kids call you this and then you don't want to be, or you change, they leave. And I just thought it was so, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know another polarizing word like this one. I mean, I think, I think it's, well, I mean, I, I was blown away, um, which I'm sure you probably I imagine you've touched on this at some of your other podcasts, but I remember being, I don't know what year it was that I first heard about it, but you know, much later, but I got, when I got hit to the concept of emo night, I think the first time I heard about it was probably, it was when Desperados got back together the first time, which would have been when the first, sorry, there's like some construction over here. Um, when the, the first time, when we put out our, uh, the Maricopa seven inch, like what have that been? 2012, 2013. And so like some email came through that was like, do you guys want to host an emo night? I forget what city it was. And I was like, what does that even mean? And, uh, I was like, I'm good. I'm like, I'm good. I don't, I, don't, I think I'm fine. I'm not gonna, I don't know what, I don't really know what that means. And I don't, I don't think, I don't think so. Um, but I think Denver ended up doing it and he was like, it was fucking crazy. Like, you know, I mean, he got paid or whatever. I was like, yeah, go get paid. Fucking whatever. I didn't care. But I was like, okay, that's interesting. And he's like, yeah, there's kids lined up around the block. And it was like, and I'm like, I'm like, let me get this straight. There's kids lined up around the block. They fill up like whatever club it was. He was like, yeah, there's like, you know, whatever, 300 kids here that are freaking out and and i'm like you're just playing songs like you're playing like old songs from the 90s off your fucking ipod or whatever he's like yep i'm like fuck more power to you like that seems insane but great and then yeah like you said like it started touring and you know it became you know this it obviously became this huge thing everywhere and it was baffling to me and similar actually to my fucking girl, like Phoebe Bridgers, like she just, she did, like they paid her a bunch of money to do one here in LA, like not that long ago. And she was like, she was playing like what she thought was like classic. She was playing like Captain Jazz and like cursive and shit. And they were like, you know, and then she played, I think like, you know, kind of as a joke, she played like Avril Lavigne or something. And the, the crowd went wild. And then they like cut her set short by like 20 minutes because she wasn't playing more like Avril Lavigne. And I'm like, wait, this is like totally, you know, this snake eating its tail. This thing is like turned in on itself. Like if it was a celebration of this like certain era of music, it's like definitely not that anymore, which is fine. But 
yeah, maybe it should have a different name. It's interesting, like, you know, she's like what? She's like 26 now or something, but like, yeah, her and her friends have such a different, um, just like perspective of that whole thing because, you know, they're obviously younger than us. And so, you know, I remember like, like turning her on to like, you know, that band I mentioned earlier, Vitreous Humor, which is the fucking, I think, I still think they're like an amazing band from Lawrence, Kansas. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm still like in a little bit of contact with Danny and I always loved all his bands, regrets, all this stuff. So you turned Phoebe onto Vitreous Humor. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck yeah. I was like, I was like, oh, cause she was like playing all this stuff and she was playing some stuff that I hadn't heard. You know, I hadn't, um, there was one song on the Better Oblivion Community Center record, um, that like she had because we kind of like all the songs started with like either one of my ideas or one of her ideas and then we would like work on them together but one of our songs the song big black heart you know started with this guitar riff and um i was like oh that's 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 cool and then we wrote the song and she's like she's like check out this song by uh tiger's jaw that band tiger's jaw and she's like she's like She's like, I think I ripped this off from Tiger's Jaw. And she's like, I think I ripped one of our songs off from Tiger's Jaw. And so I listened to the song. I'm like, I'm like, I don't know. That's like three chords that are. And I was, you know, I guess like, I'm sorry. I'm like, I'm here to apologize, Tiger's Jaw. But I said to her, I was like, I don't know. I don't know if you need to like credit them. But she, you know, to her credit, she's like so sweet and so like ethical and smart that she's like, no, I think like, she's like i know i ripped it off from them and i want to contact them and i was like i was like okay cool like if you if that's what the way you feel like let's do it and so we uh we contacted them and you know she she was like she sent them the song and you know we gave them like you know a percentage of the publishing or whatever and she was like i don't know she felt better about it and they like were super cool they're like oh yeah like this is great like love the song and they were very sweet about it but um i don't know i thought that was like i don't know that's just like a testament to her like character that she was like i don't want to rip off this you know fucking 10 year old song from this band (laughs) which she probably could have easily done and never like given any money to but she was like no i really think i was like overly influenced by this like one tiger stuff on and i was like that's cool like nobody else would fucking do that and like i'm happy to like give them you know whatever i'm sure it amounts to like pennies but still it's like you know here's some money you know it's more like the gesture of like hey we like kind of borrowed your guys a song you know i just think it's that that's that sentiment that i think you talked about earlier about this sort of you know, DIY, helping out, do it yourself, teach, you know, you're, you're telling Phoebe about these bands and she's telling you stuff that's like connects. I, I, I feel that there, there is a difference when I hear a band or something I can hear, like, are you trying to just do the thing and buy the amps and the guitars that the people that you want to emulate, or do you really care? And if the, if the popular genre was something else, you'd be on top of that. That's how I guess I'm sort of, and again, maybe that's back to our, you and I, you know, and our, uh, you know, fuck the radio, but like, I, I can, I can hear a difference. Yeah. Yeah. I think like, you know, and yeah. And if it was in a pop genre, you would 
have to probably sample that sample if you borrowed that chord progression or that guitar tone or you know what I mean like and so like yeah I mean it's very um very cool and very like your heart's in the right place if you if you kick them down from publishing or whatever you know like um so yeah I, I thought that was cool but yeah that was a band that I don't even know when Tiger's Jaw was, was like operating but like that was a band that I had like totally missed so when she showed them to me I was like oh it sounds cool but like I never grew up with this band I didn't know anything about them to her I was like oh I could like probably find like 10 other songs with this exact chord progression and this exact same sound but like whatever like it, in her heart in her heart in her mind it like made sense to like reach out to them and I was just like that's fucking cool like that's above and beyond like what most people do so I was like I was into it when she brought it up and I feel like when you're connecting with a lot of these people that you've played with over the years I'm sure you're connecting on on music and probably a band in emo quotes gets brought up or it's hardcore or there's a punk thing and it all kind of compounds on itself. And I think that general knowledge of music or independent music plays a part in connecting with people. Do you, did you, have you had that over the years when you've meet, you know, if it was Phoebe or, or somebody else that you're playing with? Yeah. I think like, you know, like people are people. And so like over the years, like, touring you know touring the world like especially doing festivals and stuff like that it's like i um i've met a lot of people from a lot of different genres like pop genres and 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 there's there's great people in like all those genres and so i i'm I'm not going to say it's like limited to diy people but i think anybody that's been in the situation where they have to you know get in the van and like live on a shoestring budget and scrape by and do like a really, you know, poor man's tour, you know, of course they're going to have more empathy for every other musician. I mean, there's always that saying of like musicians, like find each other, like all around the world, because as musicians, you understand the concept of like showing up in a strange city, not knowing necessarily what you're going to eat that day, not knowing, you know, like, especially early on in your career it's like it really is like living a vagabond life and like living a living in a you know living a lifestyle that's very um it's just a strange lifestyle it's like i'm gonna sleep on a stranger's floor i'm gonna eat uh something that their you know whatever their friend cooked me in the house and we're gonna like play our show and then we're gonna get up early in the morning and drive nine hours to the next spot. You know what I mean? It's like, that's, that's the way I lived for years and years until, you know, obviously like eventually I got on a bus and had a tour manager and like a real booking agent and started doing like real tours. But that took years to get to that point, you know? So when I see a band, you know, sleeping in the back of their van and eating like $3 Taco Bell meals, you know, it's like, I did that shit. You know, I know exactly what, where they're at. And I feel, you know I mean? I feel, I feel the, I, I know for a fact that they love what they're doing and they, you wouldn't do it otherwise. Like there's no glory in it. There's no, you know, that's just like, you do it cause you have to play your music and you want to play it for as many people will listen. And that's, 
that's very powerful and that's very cool. And I still, you know, like, I mean, I'm taking your word for it, but I assume that there's kids out there that are doing that same shit right now, you know, or maybe not right now because of the pandemic, but yeah. They're listening and I think there's, they're, they're paying attention. And I think putting out these continuous of like, you can do this yourself. I mean, when those DJ nights started taking off and, you know, we didn't have a publicist to help us get into the magazine. So everyone thought those guys, you know, started it. I put out an article about how to do your own night. Like, here's what you buy. Here's the, here's how you set up with the bar. Like, and I would help these kids all around the country or the world to do this because if there, if one kid gets into Fugazi at that show or that night, then, um, I can go to sleep at night. <laughs> like, <Yeah. you> know, <laughs> um, totally. um, I wanted to mention, I just want to be going to school in North Carolina, you know, sorry about Dresden was a big deal. Um, and seeing them at shows or being at the cradle and, and stuff like that. So, um, you talked about merge earlier and like that indie rock thing, and that was hugely influential on me. Um, and my upbringing, just as I was into punk and hardcore and metal, that was such a huge deal. Cause it was like, oh man, merge, you know, or like, uh, like I interned at Yep Rock, um, back, yeah. you know, in the nineties. And so, um, what do you remember, you know, fondly about that band and sort of that, you know, that scene? Well, I mean, like I said, like early on, we got into like, you know, back in like 90, you know, two, one, two, three, like when I was, you know, literally 11, 12, 13 at that record store I was mentioning in Aquarium, um, we would, we got into, yeah, we got into Super Chunk, who I guess was that on Matador at the time, but, um, and we, and then they quickly started merge and then, um, like Archers of Loaf and like Eric Bachman was like another huge one for us. And yeah, just that whole Chapel Hill scene. Um, we totally, you know, me and my friends, uh, you know, Casher and everybody else, we like kind of fell in love with those bands and followed them really closely. And then kind of coincidentally, my, my oldest brother, Matty, who was in Sorry About Dresden, he, uh, he got married in Omaha and then he went to graduate school at, uh, University of North Carolina or was it North Carolina State? Anyway, I can't remember. But so anyway, he, he moved down there, him and his wife and, you know, eventually had kids and. He lived there for the rest of his life um, up until, you know, he passed a few years ago. But, um, yeah, he, he went down there and he met uh, Eric and they started Sorry About Dresden. And they were very much, like, um, entrenched in that kind of scene. And so we would always, uh, you know, tour through there and, you know, kind of hang out with all those people and... Um, yeah, it was just a weird, unplanned thing. But um, yeah, because of school, he ended up down there, and then um, because of that, it kind of it, it became a place that I I ended up going to a lot, you know, to visit him. And then um, at some point, you know, became friends with like Mac and Laura from Merge, and you know, in two thousand eight, they ended up putting out my 
solo record, like post Bright Eyes, like my self-titled and the Mystic Valley Band stuff. So, um, yeah, and yeah, and still to this day, like I, uh, yeah, I love I love Mac and I love Laura and I, I love Merge. I think they're just one of the best, most consistent labels. They actually put out, um, fucking uh, my friend Katie Crutchfield. Uh, Waxahachie, like her record Saint Cl- her record Saint Cloud came out this year on Merge, and I, you know, for my money, that's like one of the best records that's like come out this year. I, just, I love, I love her songwriting, and I love that record. And um, yeah, Merge is just one of those like most consistent, just great indie rock labels. Like um, you know, they, uh, you know, obviously they have the huge success with like the arcade fire and like the Grammy winning all that stuff with the suburbs and, you know, just all that. It's like, it's just such a thing to celebrate because, you know, I've, I've been, yeah, I've been to their offices. I've seen how they operate and they were always, you know, they were always like to us, like at Battle Creek, they were always like what we wanted to be. You know, we always looked up to, we looked up to merge. We looked up to like sub hop. We looked up to discord. You know, those were always the labels that we were trying to emulate, you know, um, to some degree. And, uh, yeah, we, that was, those are the things that influenced us at an early age to like, be like, Oh, we could make our own label. We could do our own thing. You know, you know, what's similar is it's kind of like, I mean, when I went to school, merge put, Chapel Hill on the map and I feel like that's why I got to see so many rad shows because they had built this thing and that's partly why I got to see punk and hardcore bands I think for for Saddle Creek you know helping putting your town on the map and having people yeah. notice that I, I love that I love that similarity yeah they were that was one thing that like we always tried to emulate like the idea that like like we're not going to ex- like, we're not going to like exclude bands from other places like you know we we signed like Rilo Kylie and you know obviously like once I was less involved like we um or I shouldn't say we but like Rob and like the other people that ran the label you know they went on to sign a lot of bands from all over the country and the world but even if you add up all the Saddle Creek artists I mean, I don't know. I, we'd have to do like a statistical analysis, but <laughs> I would say like 50% of them are probably from Omaha still. And that comes from our love of merge and like discord, where it's like 50% of those bands were from North Carolina and 50% of those bands are from Washington, DC, you know? And so there was always the idea of like, well, you, you, you try to bring up your your hometown music scene, and then if you can reach out and get people from other places, then do that too. But don't forget about your hometown, kind of thing. And so I feel like that was like, you know, a concept that we derived from those other labels with Saddle Creek. Um, what scr- what itch does Desaparecido scratch? 
scratch like money-wise no no what what itch does it oh. scratch like what what excitement because like oh, getting right. to see you guys i forget I what... how much money we made oh, like, not very much <laughs> <laughs> no but i i i was just sort of like the you know the you've got the side projects you've got all this thing, but like I think Dessa's got, I mean, the last time I saw you guys, I think I forget what fucking weird warehouse it was in Brooklyn. Um, it just, I feel like it's the most fun. I love that band. I love making music with them. And I would say that like, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's actually unfortunate because it's like, I feel like it's a band that was like born under like the wrong sign you know, or something because it's happened to us twice now. Like when we first were a band, um, we, you know, had a pretty successful, you know, or at the time, successful record, whatever that meant in like 2001. Um, but we were, you know, we were pretty committed and we, um, toured, but it was also, you know, it's like, this is like what people don't realize in 2002 in February of 2002 read music speak Spanish came out in August of 2002 lifted the bright eyes record came out. And so we toured and we were stoked on read music speak Spanish. But by the time lifted came out in August, it was like, you know, it was like an avalanche compared to like a fucking snow flurry. You know what I mean? It was like, it was such a bigger deal. Everyone that was involved with me that had interest in making money, including the label, including all my friends, including managers and agents, everyone was like, well, this record is like huge. Like, I mean, Death Party has gotten like some. You guys you know, toured with national, Jimmy and Promise Ring and stuff. Yeah, we had like gotten some national, international coverage, but by the time Lifted came out, it was just like it was. It just paled in comparison, and so everybody around me that had any kind of business smarts were like, "Yo, like if you want to have a fucking career, like." you should definitely like tour this record and like do this thing because it's a different, it's on a different level than your, you know, and that's kind of, cause up to, up to that point, I really wasn't thinking about things in terms of like side projects or whatever. But at that point they were like, yo, this is a side project. Like this is what people, you know, they want, you know, they're going to give you the most money and coverage and, and it was also like, I mean, on an artistic level, it was like, you know, Bright Eyes was much more of just like my songs and what I wanted to do. Whereas like Just of Arcidus was always like, you know, five dirt, you know, five dirt bags in a basement, like writing punk rock songs, you know? So, I mean, it, not that I didn't love it, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't the same as like my own songs. So to be honest, it was like, it was not a hard decision to make. It was like, oh, obviously I'll like 
do bright eyes because that's more like my own project you know but i know it like i know it like bummed you know bummed some of those guys out you know uh you know probably bummed all of them out but definitely denver and matt bomb and uh my i was telling you about my cousin that has my same middle name so the keyboard player and uh like the keyboard player in uh Desparcitos is Ian Mullen McElroy. So uh that's like my first cousin and like my best friend. So he didn't really give a shit. He was kinda like he was used to my used to my bullshit at that point. <laughs> but I think the other I think the other four guys or the other three guys were um bummed out, but yeah. That's kinda like it's kind of the way it had to be at the time. Um, you know, what's crazy is this year is 25 years of bright eyes. I know. Right. It's insane. Was there going to be a bunch of big shows and what, 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 what didn't we get because of COVID we're supposed to get for 25 years of bright eyes. <laughs> I know you had the record, but we had like literally two years of touring planned. God damn it. And, and now it's like, who knows? I think, I mean, we, we're still holding that um, Forest Hills show in Queens, in New York, um, for next July. Like, it's literally still um, on on the books. Like, you could go today and, I think, buy a ticket for it if you wanted. Whether it'll happen or not, I don't know, because it got postponed the entire year. But that was, like, for us, that was, like, a big deal because we put it on sale and we didn't know, you know, that's a giant place. And we sold like 10,000 tickets, which for us is like maybe the most tickets we've ever sold. Or we played the Hollywood Bowl once in 2007 when Cassidy came out. And I think we might have sold like 11,000 tickets or something. But like, that's about the peak of like Bright Eyes popularity. <laughs> and so, so the fact that we sold 10,000 tickets in like, you know, 2019, 2020 or whatever. Like we were like, damn, people still want to see our band. So we were very excited and we were looking forward to it. And so they ended up postponing it a whole year. So maybe hopefully it'll happen next July, but obviously no one can say definitively what what's going on, but if we can do it, safely and make sure everybody that goes is safe then we will we will plan that show so for whatever that's worth and if you if you buy a ticket we will if the show doesn't happen you'll get your money back but i understand that a lot of people don't want to like tie their money up and shit that may or may not happen so i'm not expecting anyone to like buy more tickets but just so anyone that's out there that's like listening that is wondering like we are like a thousand percent committed to playing the show if we can if we can do it if we can do it safely we'll fucking do it so we'll have to see it's a long ways from now obviously yeah what's in what i love the way you describe that and you thinking about you know it's 25 years of bright eyes you've got this you know you did have a new record you had all these things planned but also this time period has made people think and maybe look in their sock drawers or start to process about what's important. And have you thought about, 
your legacy, your history? Are there things written down? Have you saved things? Or is that something that interests you? I'm so bad at saving anything. I'm like such a bad collector. Like I have so many friends that are like, like, okay, I've had so many records in my life. Like I've had like great, probably like as far as like collectors stuff, like I've probably had like expensive records and shit, but I've like, I can't keep track of anything. I like, I lose guitars. I lose amps. I lose vinyl records. I lose like expensive you know, designer fucking one of a kind clothes. I lose everything. I've been given a lot of expensive shit in my life and I've literally lost all of it. Like if you look at me right now, like you'd be embarrassed. Like I'm like, I'm wearing like cut off jean shorts and like a fucking t-shirt that someone gave me and like some shitty, like broken, like uh floppy leather, like uh slippers without socks, you know? Like I'm, uh, I, I, I'm like, I look like a homeless person. I'm like, I got nothing. Um, so no, I don't save anything. But do you but, think about it? Do you think about, you know, it's there, there's well, 25 years and all these types. Does, does that come into your head a lot? Well, no, but I'm lucky that I have some people in my life, um, one is my manager, Nate Crinkle, who's been my manager since I was like 20 years old, who kind of, he's kind of a stoner and like a shithead, so maybe not him, but he kind of, he kind of keeps track of it. And then um, another one of my friends, this guy, Zach Nipper, who um, has made every, every Bright Eyes artwork, like every album artwork we've ever made. Um, and the only Grammy we ever won is Bright Eyes was from his artwork from Casadega. Um, but he's my really old friend from Omaha who's been making all our artwork since uh, Letting Off the Happiness in uh, 1998. And he's a great artist and he's a very like avid um, collector and like archivist. So he, I've been to his like attic at his house, like where he lives with his like wife and children. And they, he's got like literally like a museum's worth of like shit from not just me, but like all our friends, like Kasher and all the Saddle Creek shit. Cause he was around the whole time. And so there's guys like that, that I feel like, some point in the future, if, like someone has the interest in like seeing all that old shit, someone's got it. But that should not be my job because I'm like the worst at that. Job. <laughs> See, you know I what? Should, That's good management <laughs> because you know <laughs> what you're good at, and you you let someone else do. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you. God damn it! Turn off that circular saw. <laughs> um, you're also a foreman. Jesus Christ. <laughs> um. All right, I'll tell you a story. Um, so, 2005, like, Bright Eyes, you know, whatever, we're kind of, you know, we're kind of in the national consciousness or whatever. We got, like, you know, a couple big records out there. And um, we get the, you know, we get the call from our our uh, agent 
thing do you want to play Neil Young's uh, Bridge School benefit, which, you know, he does every year. It's uh, North, Northern California. They do it at, like, Mountain View is the name of the town. They do it at, the like, the little Coliseum Amphitheater there. It's, you know, it's sold out every year. It's always, like, he's been doing it for, at this point, like, 20 years. He always has, like, sort of, like, older artists, and then he'll have, like, a couple new artists. Um, so like 2005, he was like, you know, we got the invite, um, and of course we said yes. And then we show up and it was really cool because it's a three day thing. So Saturday and Sunday, they have the, the shows that are always sold out. And then, but Friday, at least back in the day in 2005, they would have you go out to Neil Young's ranch and he would basically have a barbecue for not only all the bands, which is this is how cool Neil Young is. Is like he would have a barbecue for not just the bands, but all their crew, all their guests, and of course, like I'm the shithead that shows up with like 30 people. <laughs> like my parents wanted to go. Like my mom and dad were like, "You going to Neil Young's house?" Like I'm like, "You guys are gonna embarrass me." Like somehow he let me show up at like 25. I definitely had the most people there. Um, and I was super embarrassed of that, but, um, went to this, went to the barbecue. Great. The whole weekend was great. But that night at the barbecue, I went, he's like, they had, he had this big, um, uh, fire pit in his yard essentially. And I was sitting on a thing and this guy like slipped up next to me, starts talking to me older guy and like much older guy and beautiful long like gray white hair beard and uh his name was gary burden and he's turns out he's like one of the most like you know iconic art directors made every um album cover in california like in the 60s and 70s, like Doors, Mama Cass, Joni Mitchell, Jackson Brown, uh, Crosby, Sills, Nash & Young, every Neil Young record. He's like Neil Young's best friend. Um, and he, that from that night on, he became my best friend. Um, he died like two years ago. He had a stroke at like 84 but before that, we um, we had like 10 great years, or no, more than 10. We had, that was 2005, he died. So yeah, we had like 13 great years of him being like literally like one of my best friends. We would talk almost every day. He made every, like every one of my um, solo album covers. He made the Monsters of Folk cover. And he just he sat down next shit. to you at this barbecue. Yeah, I love that. Just like he like he like lit up a joint and we like started smoking this joint, and we became my fucking best friends. And um, yeah, got to know his whole family, all his kids, everybody over the next fifteen years, and that shit changed my life, you know. And uh, I never, you know, you know, I've seen like Neil Young over the years here and there, but I actually. 
next time I see him, I'm going to thank him again. But I never got a chance to thank him for um, introducing me to Gary. But, like, Gary was, like, I mean, he was, like, my boy. He was deepest to my heart. Like, whenever anything bad happened with me, anything of consequence, I would, he would be, like, the first person I called. He was, like, he became, like, my spirit guide, like, like, love of my life, like, fucking love that guy, like, more than anything. And I know that he did that for more than just me. Like, he was, uh, he was just such a beautiful soul. And, um, yeah, it's just, like, stuff like that, like, that you can't anticipate in music, that you can't, there's no way to, like, like what we're talking about, like, when you're little kid at a punk rock show and you know when you're 13 years old to then like flash forward to being 25 and meeting this like incredible artist that then becomes like your best friend for the next like 15 years it's like it's like that's the way i don't know it's like that's the beautiful shit about the world that's like this that's the thing that's unexpected and that's the thing that's um, I don't know. That's the thing that keeps me going. And I, I don't know. I want to like, you know, I feel like you brought it up earlier, but like, you know, I think that's, if you and I have a job, um, as being, you know, whatever guys a little bit farther down the road, like, I think like that's our job to like, you know, include younger people into the fold of, understanding and like just knowing that like the love of music and art and the thing that's going to sustain us is like a human species it's not of course we have to like stop like faking like we're recycling plastics and we have to fake like we're collecting fucking rainwater we have to like do all that shit we have to like we have to deal with like the scientific part, but we have to also deal with the emotional part, which is like finding people that we can believe in that are not fucking with us. And especially for like younger people, it's like, Hey, we're going to, you know, I think, I don't know. I don't know, Tim. I think like our fucking shit is like, everybody's got to like do shit. It's, more um just more inclusive to everybody you know what i mean right it's it's not the gatekeeping but you're right like going up to someone and saying like hey what's up and maybe they don't get it then and maybe it doesn't hit them but at some point down the line they're going to remember like you did or i did from people and you're going to remember those conversations and it's going to mean something. And yeah, I think that's, that's again, that's the whole point of my podcast, my website, the books. Like I just want like no one, no one, when I, I work in the music industry as a full-time job and people like want to feel like they're like, they're the winner. I'm like, you're not the winner. No one's going to remember you. They're going to remember Bob Dylan. They're going to remember Johnny cash and miles and everybody else. And, and Connor Oberst. I do, you know, and that, that sort of a uh, pass that on, pass their, pass the music on. Um, past the knowledge and what that just, what what I your friend did it I was amazing. I called you, 
I called you Tim. Your name's Tom. I'm Do you know sorry. what happens, Connor? My mom does that. So my mom will get like <laughs> flustered and she'll, cause my dad's name, my, my dad's name was Tim. Named Tim. No, my dad's name was Tim. And so, really? and my oh. mom will say Tim by accident and I'll be like, no, that's dad. <laughs> so right, you're not Tom, the first. I'm sorry. Right, were you, Tom. when I was talking, were you thinking the whole time that I fucked up Tom's name? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think what exactly. you said was really beautiful and like we are we need to pass this on. Like it that's what's important. I wish you could have met fucking Gary, dude. He was such a cool guy. He's like I mean he still like lives and everybody like I mean, if you talk to anybody from like California, like they fucking they know what's up with this guy. He was always the coolest guy at like every show. I mean, like I always thought like if I could be like this guy when I'm, he died when he was 84 and he still would give you like this great fucking hug, like the best fucking hug you could ever have. And he was so cool. And yeah, I, I, I wish you could have known him, but he, yeah, he lives on like his art lives on and it's just, um, yeah, it's like people like that. Like, I just feel like, it's, you know, it's our job to sort of, you know, especially now, like extend that to like, you know, younger generations and make them understand. Cause I feel like there is like, a, there's a disconnect or there's a, there's at least like a possibility for like disconnection from like the younger generation just cause of like internet and whatever bullshit. But there doesn't have to be. And I feel like we have to kind of, you know, as far as like, especially like music, like all the shit you're talking about, like musical lineage, like understand, you know, it's the same way. Like, I think we always went through it where it's like, oh, this, this, I like this band, but then they lead back to this band and then they lead back to this artist. And then this, you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, you know, I'm obsessed with like old ass music now that like I didn't think I would ever be obsessed with at like, you know, learning from like, you know, my friend like Gillian Welch and shit. Like, you know, she'll like kick me down with like these like incredible, you know, artists and stuff that I just didn't know about, you know, because like how would I ever know about it? Until like Gillian was like, Oh, that that's what I was influenced by and I'm like, Well, I'm in love with every Gillian Walsh album, so I should know about this, you know what I mean? So I mean, in a small you know, in a smaller frame, like that probably extends to like punk rock, emo, hard hardcore shit where it's like, All right, well, you like, you know, whatever, you like shame, maybe you'll like fucking minor thread or whatever i don't know i'm like i'm just throwing out names but well you're doing you're doing god's work right now it's like chronicling it and making sure like people know they got a resource to go to if they need you know if they need some reminders of like what well, what's tied you know i think it's great tommy was so great talking to you i really appreciate it you're you're 
you're an angel just like Tim said you'd be, so thank you so much. It was dawn, the little whiskey, and a blinking midnight clock. Speakers on a TV stand, just a turntable to watch. When the smoke came out our mouths on all those hooded sweatshirt walks, we were a stroke of luck. We were a gold mine, they gutted us. Hello, Washed Up Emo fans. Thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years. Or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by, and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening. And for this current episode you're about to hear, I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo, and Volume 2 was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shuttle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield also reprinted volume one so you can order both check out the diy publishing at anthologyofemo.com